Hello, I'm Emily, a soon-to-be third-year law student. And I'm Robert, a soon-to-be third-year HSBS. Welcome to The Spoke, where we spoke to you about all things cats. The Spoke is a podcast for all your cats-based needs. We're here to broadcast interviews and features about cats directly to your phone. Recorded across an entire continent to bring cats and its wheelie good community together. You may notice that The Spoke is a clearly excellent pun based off the wheel. So settle down, grab a cup of tea, and an unlimited portion of potatoes. It's The Spoke. As a podcast about our college, St. Catharines, we have to acknowledge that it's a small one. That is no secret. Yet whilst we are no doubt small in our physical size, we more than make up for this in our presence in the wider university community. Cat's Corridor and Cindy's, our stunning grades, our infamous cheese course, our pioneering podcast. But to dwell on our small size, Cambridge colleges as a genre, architecturally, are hardly ergonomic beasts. Impractical, large, manicured lawns, wood-panelled rooms for fine dining. More specifically, and the topic of this episode, is the fact that approximately 33% of our college building is devoted to a large, beautiful, incredible, yet drafty room, the College Chapel. To see the relevance of religion in Cambridge life, we only need to look next door to where there is the cavernous King's College Chapel, which is so opulent it took the funding of three separate English kings over a hundred years to erect. Why bother? Does it matter? What is the place of religion in the modern Cambridge College? More specifically, what is the role of the college chapel and its chaplain? Is there more to their work than just faith alone? We sat down on a locked down Wednesday in July to talk to Ali about herself and her work in the religious, pastoral and constitution life of the college. So let's hear a little bit more from Ali herself. Hello Ali, it's good to spoke to you. It is very good to spoke to you too. So Ali, um, how has your lockdown been thus far? Well, like everybody, it's been a little weird. Um, uh, Like everyone else, I've moved to working from home um, and that included the chapel as well. Um, So we've we've had this odd experience of having a virtual chapel with virtual services uh, all through Easter term. Um, But that was a real, it was a challenge, but actually it was a real joy as well. There were some unexpected bonuses that came from doing chapel online. And I had my son uh, to help me with all the kind of technical aspects, which was completely invaluable, uh, especially at first. So I think we've all learnt some new skills. Um, particularly technically Um, so we managed to keep night songs and choral evening song going all the way through term and everything literally everything has been online just like for everybody else so it's been a bit odd Um, um, but it's been it's been kind of better than I thought it would be I think it's probably fair to say definitely I went on I went along virtually of course to a couple of even songs or even zooms even um, they, 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 it's, the fact was there. Um, it's strange, but it, it, it functioned. <laughs> it did. And it, what was lovely is that um, this this year we've been having for Cats 40 um, all women preachers uh, across the whole year. Um, and a lot of them are alumni of the college. And what was really nice is that most of them still came and preached last term, even though it was online. And uh, we had uh, women who were in the first cohort of women admitted to the college 40 years ago. And some of them brought their friends, um, which was a real delight. So we had this funny mix of congregation that we would never have had normally if we were live in chapel. Um, And that 
was absolutely lovely. A real bonus. Oh. Um, so the, one of the reasons we wanted to speak to you today was to just get to know you and to hear about how you got to cats. And so, yeah, we want to begin with asking you how you decided to become a chaplain in the first place. Gosh, lots and lots of reasons. Um, I suppose I think the main one is um, I was at Cambridge when I was um, an undergraduate. And um, I think I arrived as an undergrad. I didn't go to the right kind of school and um, I didn't really know what to expect. And I think I I wasn't quite sure that I would belong uh, when I got to Cambridge. And I think it was joining the chapel community and becoming a chapel warden and then eventually singing in the choir that made me realised that I could belong and it gave me a way to belong um, if that makes sense and the the college chaplains who were there at the time were really really helpful and supportive to me Uh, when I was a student um, I was really not confident at all Um, and um, they made me feel like I could I I belonged and I could do it Um, and I'll never forget that Um, my previous job was also working with students but student ministers um, called ordinands Um, And it was that that drew me back into academic life and the university after uh, about 11 years as a parish priest. So that's sort of why chaplaincy and why St Catherine's. Well, I knew cats a little bit because my daughter sang in the girls' choir. And uh, there's always college chaplaincy jobs being advertised all the time. Almost every term, there's some kind of moving around of the chaplains. Um, But I didn't apply for any others because there is just something unique about St Catherine's. uh, And I thought it could be somewhere that I could feel at home, which I guess goes back to that sense of belonging um, that I think we all look for and need in life. So would you say that your undergraduate experience and your experience at a different college really has informed how you do the job in the present at all? Yes. I mean, it was, you know, it was 25 or something years ago that I was um, an undergraduate. So a lot's changed in that time and a lot has changed for the better as well, particularly in terms of equality and just getting a better social mix in the colleges. But I think the chaplaincy in chapel still has that place of um, in just kind of in the heart of a college, a place that anybody can go to and a person that anybody can go to. Um, and I think in a sense that hasn't changed. The best of that hasn't changed. And perhaps it's more important than ever. People have all sorts of reasons why they might go and chat with the chaplain. Um, and it's good that there's somebody in college who, you know, who's just there for people. Um, and we found out through looking at your page, I think, on the CATS website that you did, uh, you have an undergraduate degree in music. Um, so we were wondering how your background in music informs how you approach the job today. Apparently, you also um, wrote the CATS, wrote lyrics for the CATS song in 2018, right? Um, that's right, yeah. So... Uh, I mean, music's been massively important to me all through my life. Um, It's one of the things that kind of makes me tick. Um, I love to sing. And on a very practical level, I think for a chaplain, if you can sing, it means that there's this whole aspect of the job leading chapel services that is both easy and enjoyable. Whereas I think if singing is something that you're not comfortable with, 
that would be like an added layer of stress. Um, so the fact that I can sing and I'm a musician, it just makes that aspect of it easy when it might not be. So there's, there's that aspect of it. But also I think uh, last year quite a bit, um, I deputised in the choir. Um, if there's one of the altos was ill, um, it was easy for me to just sing along. And I really loved doing that. It was great. Um, getting back into singing again. And I think that was quite good for Dr Wickham as well. So we didn't have to worry if somebody was off sick, I could just fill in. But I think also it's made me appreciate how important kind of creativity and the arts are in like human life and how people flourish. I also love painting and I do quite a lot of art um, and I've always sort of done creative stuff and it's, it's a great way of kind of getting in touch with questions that you can't easily put into words. Having said that, I do also write hymns, which is all about putting stuff into words and it's often the kind of undefinable things um, that you're trying to squeeze into lyrics that have to rhyme and have to fit a particular meter and all of that there's quite there's quite a lot of givens with him writing it's got to fit the tune it's got to have the right number of syllables and all of this kind of thing and I quite like the creative process of trying to fit kind of intangible stuff into lines that rhyme and scan so I wrote the college commemoration hymn actually before I was here as a chaplain it was commissioned um, a couple of years before I joined the college and then I also wrote the lyrics for the Leavers song that was on the little graduation video this summer and both of those I was trying to kind of convey in words some of that kind of deeper values stuff that makes St Catherine's what it is and that is about our own kind of human flourishing both communally and individually so we were wondering, obviously, you know, you're a huge force in college and do these various different things. But and I suppose what many people sort of typically associate you with is Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings doing the services. But what is a day in the life of a chaplain like on, say, a Tuesday? You know, a nine to five, what are you doing? That's such a good question. It's almost an impossible question because one of the things I love about this job, but also about all the ministry jobs I've done, is that you don't get two days that are the same. And there's always that level of kind of unpredictability um, and in, in, in a big way, and this don't, don't, don't want this to sound the wrong way, but chaplaincy is a lot about making it up as you go along. So you can have plans and uh, all sorts of really good ideas that you put in place, but actually a lot of it's about what's needed right now in this moment so um no two days are alike and before so before lockdown i'd be in college six days a week and so saturday's my day off so average day have breakfast with my kids at home and then i'd be in college at 8 30 for morning prayer and i find that a really helpful start to the day um and i just ask god for a blessing on the college and i remember different groups or aspects of the college each day so i have a little rotor and like say mondays it's the maintenance department and i don't know graduate students living in russell street or whatever it's i can't remember what goes on which day um but every day and i try and kind of get through the whole college community um over the course of a week and then if there's any special things which are going on um i'll always ask a blessing on those as well and for me that's a really important start to the day um so whatever else is happening it always starts with that and Dr Wickham joins me on a Thursday for morning prayer and over Zoom as well um, and we actually sing the whole morning prayer to plain song it's really fun um, you don't have to leave that bit in um, uh, it's a bit niche um, 
for the rest of the day, it's a whole mixture of sometimes I'm preparing for services or I'm having kind of pastoral chats with people or welfare chats. Um, quite a lot of meetings. Meetings seem to be an inevitable thing in everyone's lives. Uh, an inevitable bit of admin, but there's a lot of creative stuff as well. So writing resources and particularly welfare resources this last term and uh, doing things like running the little walks um, that we I go on a few times a week and people can come and join me. A whole load of sort of random stuff, really, and hopefully quite a lot of kind of connecting people with with one another. Um, A lot of the stuff I do is a bit more like the mortar than it is like the bricks. So it's not a a, a kind of one thing in a silo. It's the way that people connect with one another. So some of the working groups that I'm on are all about bringing together different departments and trying to get different aspects of the college to work well with one another in order to achieve what we want to achieve. So I kind of wander around a little bit and try and kind of have some conversations face-to-face rather than just by email. Lunch is a chance to catch up with some of the fellows and if there's an evening service, I'll stay in college for that. So I'd be home at about 7.30 on a Tuesday and a Thursday, unless there's night songs, in which case it's more like 11 at night. Um, If there's no service, I'll leave a bit earlier um, and then get home, make the dinner, make sure the kids have done their homework, that kind of thing. It's quite a long day. And during lockdown, it's been all the same stuff, but with me sitting at my little tiny desk in my bedroom um, using Zoom and Teams a lot. Honestly, nobody quite knows what post-lockdown work will look like, but we are all making sure that we can keep safe while enjoying as much of the experience of being part of St Catharines as we possibly can. But nobody quite knows what that looks like yet, so we're all kind of working on it in our different ways. And I don't know what my post-lockdown life will look like um, entirely but uh, I think that's a sort of taster it sounds ever so bitty like I'm not doing very much really but somehow it seems to fill the day um, that's lovely and I think for the average student we know you mostly in your role in your pastoral role so we were wondering what your approach uh, was to that sort of function um, what, what do you think of the mindfulness courses that they offer in the college for example and how do you incorporate these other kind of new age types of meditation into into that? That's a really great question. I think one of the things I would say is that like all the aspects of what I do as chaplain, they all kind of overlap with one another. So although I have this role, which is to do with spiritual care, including chapel services, there's an overlap between that and welfare and pastoral care. So I imagine this kind of big Venn diagram in my head and kind of people's well-being and human flourishing is everything. And then within that, there are kind of aspects of it that overlap with one another, if that makes sense. So within kind of spiritual care, often that's questions like, I don't know, existential questions. And it might be from people who, who aren't at all Christian, but who have a sense of this being about more than just the material thing that's in front of them. And that's sometimes questions about like the meaning of life and what am I going to do with my life? How do I know how to make good choices about careers and jobs and all kinds of other things? And it's sometimes hard to say, well, is this a spiritual question or is it a practical question or is this a welfare question? Or Because they're actually basically human questions. So I think there's a lot of overlap. However you, however you cut it, there's a lot of overlap. I think pastorally, 
with uh, with Mary, our amazing, fantastic welfare officer. It's just brilliant having her here. I don't know what we did before she arrived, actually. I'm trying to think back what it was like. And it's just, um, you know, since she's arrived, it's been brilliant what we've been able to do. But working with her, we've been able to look at well-being, I think, much more holistically. And um, I think the mindfulness stuff is very much part of that. There is a strand of Christian mindfulness that I'm familiar with, but the basic values of it, attention to oneself and one's place in the world, and becoming more at ease with the the place and the space that you occupy in the world is something which I've reflected quite a lot on and has, I think, changed me. So anything that helps people to do that and to kind of dig down a bit and find out what those values are that are motivating them, as well as deal with the kind of the surface anxieties and some of the other things that kind of that we think of as welfare issues. Actually, a lot of it's about being rooted. And um, I think questions about being rooted are applicable whether you're Christian or Muslim or Baha'i or, you know, whatever faith or no faith. Um, I think they're, they're, like I say, they're human questions. And it's really important that we have a chance to ask those questions and address them and explore them in a whole range of different ways. Um, So it might be mindfulness, it might be going for a nature walk, um, it might be um, some kind of creative activity, it might be an act of Christian worship in the chapel. In a sense, they're asking similar questions, um, perhaps in different ways. That's really interesting. So obviously you've dwelled a lot there about your wider role and touching on welfare and sort of pastoral care and etc etc but I was I was wondering um you know obviously not not to ask you to dwell on the historical facets of what a chaplain is but how do you sort of do you do you see the role as a changing one and obviously you know the medieval college was probably more religious than the perhaps more secular one of the present day written into the college's statutes is this assumption that call it religion, I think that's how the statues name it, has an important role within human community um, and I think you know that's, that's, that's still the case, it's still written into the college's statutes and I think it's a real strength that that goes back right to the roots of the college and its foundation, um, that this is an acknowledgement that faith is a significant part of human culture and life and the college was founded on a library, a chapel and a dining hall and <laughs> As such, it's a place of discourse and fellowship and growth as human beings. Um, It it sounds like I'm saying the same thing over and over again with this, but I think that there's a really important sense that the the chapel is kind of one leg of a three-legged stool. And the way in which our kind of, uh, as human beings, we grow and develop individually and in community, I think is shaped by all those different aspects. It's a kind of body, mind and spirit thing, I suppose, in a lot of ways. And I think... I think that's probably what's at the heart of religion being part of the college's foundation and it might be expressed differently now but I think it's still the case that we as a college see ourselves not just as a place where people grow their minds but as a place where people grow as human beings and I hope that the, you know the chapel and me as chaplain uh, that I have uh, something to contribute to that. I think that's. I'm not a historian, so I've kind of steered clear of the the history. Um, but I think that's. It's a vision about human flourishing, holistic human flourishing, and that's that's still as it was, uh, right at the college's foundation. Well, that's fascinating because I think often the first thing that I 
thought when I heard of the word chaplain, which I had never heard of before I got to Cambridge, was what is it? You know, why do colleges still have chaplains? But it's really interesting to hear that, you know, it's more than just like the religious part. It's just much bigger than that. And um, I wanted to kind of touch upon prayer rooms, um, which have kind of been a topic of discussion. Uh, and there's talk of perhaps including a prayer room within the College Hub project. So I was wondering uh, what you thought on the topic, um, whether you had a stance on it. Um, I think it's brilliant if we can do it. Uh, everyone who's at Cats will know that we're not an overly spacious college. Um, <laughs> we're, I think we're probably the, the least spacious of the kind of the central colleges, really. So it's actually really hard to find room for anything, but it is something that we're actively working on. And um, at the moment, um, those of those who are in the JCR and the MCR will know that we've um, uh, we're trying to take some sounding as to what are the kind of criteria that make a room suitable as a prayer room. We, we may have identified a suitable space, but. It depends a lot on whether it fits the criteria that it would need to fit in order to, to, to actually be what it needs to be. So um, can you all keep your fingers crossed with me that this works out? I think it's it's not necessarily a straightforward um, process either, sort of fitting out a prayer room, even if we identify a space. Not everybody will agree with what it has to be like and how it needs to be decorated and what sort of facilities it would need. So... It's it's a it's a process that won't be instant and won't be overnight, but it's it's something which I'm absolutely committed to trying to make happen, and that college is is really keen to make happen if we possibly can, and if we can do it in a way that results in a room that people feel really happy to use. There's no point doing it if it if it's if it's a tiny tiny box room, and you know that would be kind of worse than useless. So. It's, if we're going to be able to do it, it's, it's got to really work for people and be something that we can all be proud of and feel happy to go in. It's, it's also the case, I mean, I've tried to make the chapel as inclusive a space as it possibly can be. And um, I love the fact that the chapel's open all day. People can just wander in and spend some time quietly thinking uh, without going to a service. And it's really important to me that the space is available to everyone. So even, you know, in the interim... I do hope that the chapel doesn't feel like a, an inhospitable space to people of other faiths. But I'm also aware that not everyone's comfortable in a, in a Christian place of worship. And I think that's, that's partly the thinking behind the, the prayer space. So I definitely want the chapel to be, and I hope I've, I've tried to make the chapel, into a safe space but also a courageous space. Um, there's a lot of talk of safe spaces and I think that's a really important idea and a really helpful idea, especially for anyone who owns a space and wants to make it hospitable to people. It's really important that we've got that idea of safety and what makes good hospitality. But I actually even more like the idea of courageous space. I came across it a couple of months ago in a seminar I went to and I fell in love with it as an idea because a courageous space is one which has a kind of bedrock of acceptance and inclusion and welcome that makes the kind of safe place to stand that enables people to take a risk and be themselves and you know being yourself if you're not sure how that will be received 
is an incredibly courageous thing to do. And asking hard questions about your own identity and trying to learn about other people's, that's a courageous thing to do. And in a sense, no matter how welcoming you are, you you can't make that 100% safe. And it won't feel 100% safe for people. It will always feel like a risk, like an act of courage. So alongside safe space, I'd want the chapel to be somewhere that feels like a courageous space, somewhere that is safe enough to do difficult things in. Does that make any sense? Oh, no, absolutely, absolutely. Perfectly. I think that's a really interesting idea as well. Mm-hmm. Sort of, I, you know, um, well, sort of the idea of inclusion earlier this year to blow my own little tiny little trumpet. You know, you let us host, myself and Frey um, hold a little poetry night in the chapel in for LGBT History Month. And, you know, I think talk, talk to people after the event, talk to yourself. It did, it did feel some... It, it felt very uh, poignant and um, opened up a space which is often stereotyped, perhaps, or is experienced by some as an unwelcoming one. Well, I, I was absolutely delighted to be able to host that in the chapel. Um, I thought it was a really beautiful event. It was really well thought through by you and Frey. I thought that was Thank brilliant. Um, and I was absolutely <laughs> delighted that the chapel could kind of give a literal physical space um, to something which gave space to those to those voices. And it was just lovely. I mean, all just sitting on the floor on the cushions and the blankets. And um, it had just such a lovely feel to it. Um, I really, really enjoyed it. And I thought that was such a good use of the chapel. And in a way, kind of sort of sitting on the floor with the blankets it occupies that space in such a different way you know the chapel is beautiful I do I do love it as a piece of architecture but it it does look quite um it looks like a strict place with a lot of rows and set seating and immovable furniture and all of that sort of thing and I think when you occupy a space like that differently by sitting on the floor and getting the blankets out and putting cushions on the floor and things I think you kind of subvert some of those strict straight lines and you make the place softer it's like yarn bombing I, I quite happily talk about yarn bombing forever but it's um, <laughs> yarn bombing seems to me about subverting a physical environment what is yarn bombing um, sorry what's yarn bombing oh my goodness I could I could talk about this for so long okay if you, you have, google yarn bombing and the ultimate example of it is if you google yarn bombing pink tank I promise you, you will see a picture. And somebody has literally knitted a jumper for a tank out of pink wool. Oh. And it's just, it's so amazing. And it, it sort of, it turns all the kind of hard edges soft and all the sharp edges kind of curved. And it kind of subverts all, oh, I, mean, it, I mean, everything is happening in that pink tank. So if you, if you Google that and have a look at it, that will that's like the absolute extreme yarn bombing. But what it does do is show you a little bit about what's happening there. So, yeah, so it's about kind of the hard, the cold, the spiky being kind of transformed and subverted by things that are soft and and I absolutely love it there's there's yarn bombing on Mill Road Bridge there's yarn bombing on the trees at Fullbourne Psychiatric Hospital there's you know people have yarn bombed whole villages um I absolutely love it sorry I could talk forever about yarn bombing I think it's it's like a, it's public art but it's also it's like graffiti it's subversive um and it transforms the physical environment um, that's one of the things I'm really kind of interested in and passionate about. So occupying the chapel as a space in a way that softens its hard edges 
I think can be really transformative of people's experience of the space, not just for that event, but when they come into the chapel another time. They'll remember what the space felt like when we were all sitting on the floor and it will feel like an easier place. Yeah, I think I, I attended that event and that was really the impression I got because, like Robert, you'd gotten so many flags and put them around and, yeah, it really did have that yarn bombing effect, I guess. So, so events that, that do that, that use the space differently... I think can be really, really helpful for people feeling like it's their space. Um, so we're going to have an exhibition as part of Black History Month um, in the chapel. We're hoping to have some art in there and various other things, maybe a spoken word event as well. Um, so Josie and Danielle are doing some fabulous stuff for Black History Month and I'm delighted the chapel can host a bit of that too. That's so exciting. Um, in term- you spoke of physical spaces and the college as a whole is a physical space and I know that you're very involved with uh, kind of the college hub and making sure that all of the new building works are as sustainable as they can be and um, recently you set up, well it was about a year ago now, the Green Working Group and so I was wondering if you could tell us more about what it does and what its intended impact is and yeah, what, what's your involvement with kind of the college as a sustainable space? One of the things I'm absolutely passionate about in my own life is sustainability. And so I act as kind of secretary of the Green Working Group. I'm not the chair of it because our amazing environment fellow, Bill Sutherland, is the chair of it. And he actually knows things, um, which is really <laughs> useful. Um, uh, but I kind of act as its enthuser, I suppose. Over this last term, it, the Green Working Group had to take a bit of a back seat just with reacting to the pandemic. And I think over time it's become clear that actually there are some real um, there's some real dialogue between the pandemic and the sustainability agenda, some of which is really creative and positive, another of which is quite challenging. So a lot of the work that we've done on the Green Working Group before the pandemic, I think we'll need to kind of go back over and have another look at to see what's changed. But it's it's been a really good and creative group that's brought together uh, well, students from the MCR and JCR, um, staff from various different departments and fellows. And it's been much more than a talking shop. We've, um, we've got some really good projects um, on the go at the moment. Again, some of them had to be put on hold because they relied on people being resident in college to kind of test them out. But we still have all of those... Um, sort of projects and ideas poised to restart um, as soon as everyone's back in college and it's been I think it's been really positive we've got plans to revamp the green guide not just as a student green guide but as a whole college green guide to try and make sure it's something that everyone's bought into Uh, there's some plans I think for um, more sort of publicity around sustainability and make that a a really high profile part of college life Um, you're absolutely right to point out that it's with the building renovations and new build projects having sustainability right at the heart of those is really crucial because if you can get sustainable design um, right at the start it's it's much easier to do that than to try and kind of bolt it on later so one of the key principles that we're looking at um, and you know Helen Haywood our operation director is is very very on on board with all of this is to look at how we can as far as possible do some future proofing in terms of even if we can't do something differently now we've got the infrastructure in place to be able to do it 
when we can, which is a really good piece of forward thinking and a good piece of strategic design. But it's also, you know, it's, it's everything from the strategic right to um, things like, you know, is that wood that's going to be used on that door um, from a sustainable source? Um, what about the stone that's being used as the cladding on that wall? Has that come from a, a quarry with good ethical standards and things like that? So there are kind of, there were the little questions as well as the really big strategic questions. And it's, um, I mean, it's great that, that we're, we're, we're able to look at all of those. And I think it's what's also lovely is that, you know, I haven't had to constantly be kind of waving the green flag at people to say, what about this? What about this? Because everybody on the group's been doing that. And that's a really, really good thing, that it's something which I think is, is becoming so embedded in how we think about our college buildings, that it's not just people on the Green Working Group that are saying, we need to be doing this or whatever, actually other people are asking those questions as well. So, you know, again, wish, wish everybody luck, because it's a massive project to do and it's really it's particularly it's really hard to kind of to manage this and to bring it forward at a time when there's so many other complexities around so um please do keep all those involved in your thoughts because uh it's it's not at all um simple uh, it's a really complex thing but i think the fact that sustainability is so much at the heart of it i think is is really brilliant and and hopefully you'll you know you'll see the fruits of that as and when it all happens interesting good to see you doing lots of you know meaningful work in college uh, and sort of really shaping the shaping the space and college life i was also wondering about an idea which i heard floating through the airwaves of a teddy bear zip wire being erected possibly at some point to raise money for charity could you maybe explain this as an idea um i have these mad ideas sometimes and uh, this is actually one which I've, I've genuinely done before so I know it works I did it when I was a parish priest and we put a zip line, not for people but for teddy bears because health and safety from the top of the church tower to the churchyard gate and then we made a little harness um, so that people's teddies could be sent down the zip wire and we, we filmed them as they went down so you could kind of see them, see them coming down and every teddy got a certificate of bravery with their name on it the name of the teddy and it's the kind of thing that's just silly enough that people might really love it this came up in a conversation I was having with the welfare team about trying to come up with a list of fun things to do that could be done under social distancing and we kind of thought well it's actually the teddies who are doing all the heavy lifting here so it should be possible I think with judicious use of gloves and masks to to get the teddies from the ground floor up to the top of A where my office is and get them down the zip line with no contamination whatsoever so that the teddies could do all the work and it could be an awful lot of fun and uh, anyway I haven't actually done a assessment for this in college and I haven't asked permission of all the right people but the people I have mentioned it to have all said we have to do this and even can we do this for freshers week so watch this space no guarantees but I'm absolutely game for asking we look forward to that in hopefully October 2020 <laughs> Um, thank you so much for speaking to us today. Um, we ask all of our interviewees to sum their experience at Cats Up with three words. So I was wondering what your words were. 
Oh, this is so difficult, though, because there's so many things. So um, I came up with three different three-word phrases, which is cheating. Um, but the first one I thought was bring it on, um, because it's just been such great fun and such, such a challenge as well. Um, the second is love this place, partly because I do love it here, but partly because my job as chaplain is to love the place where I'm sent and to love the people. Um, and then the third one is best job ever. So as you can tell, I'm pretty happy about my cat's experience. And I hope that everybody who's part of the community also has a little bit of that sense of loving the place, loving the people, being willing to rise up to the challenges and, you know, realising that they've got an important role in the community, whoever they are, um, and that they, they're going to give it their best shot. Thank you very much. That was amazing. <laughs> Thank you. A good choice of words there from Ali. Huh. It was interesting the idea that college was founded on a library, a chapel, and a dining hall. A nice idea to think about. I guess the addition of the bar was the only real expansion of college in the last 600 years. What we can say for sure, though, is that we now understand a lot more about the enduring and changing relevance of the chapel and its chaplain to college life. Thanks, Ali, for giving us some of your time. We've linked a few things we found alone about courageous spaces and yarn bombing for those interested down below in our show notes. This episode of The Spoke was produced and edited by Emily Gobey and Robert Sizer. Thanks to Alex Wallace and the choir for the jingle, and additional thanks to Katarina Dixon for our podcast artworks. Also, thank you to Sean Liu for a new digital version of our logo we are starting to use. Thanks to Rachel O'Connell for yarn bombing a local church in Oxford for us. It is greatly appreciated. We hope the church is okay. Thanks to Ellie Gregson, George Kristen Marks, and Emma McDonald for being the bestest podcasting friends we could ever ask for.